You are listening to Marcus Sahaba online radio podcast. This evening we have uh, a very prominent doctor who's been, uh, you know, really highly respected and uh, doing things uh, that is uh, really helping people to t- stay cool, calm, and collected uh, during this time of pandemic. He's our Dr. Shankara Chetty, a natural science, uh, you know, biologist and a general practitioner. And inshallah, uh, this evening he'll be discussing the body, a perfect, a perfect immune system and I tell you Dr. Sankara Chetty was referred to me by a member of parliament Ahmad Mandur Sheikh Imam and he told me you know Shafat you have to uh, you know interview the doctor because he's uh, definitely making a difference in that part of the world you know doctor told me earlier on that he in his car, uh, house you know at, uh, he used a parking lot he put a tent up and the reason why he did that he uh, you know a lot of people are getting onto the ventilators and some of this passing on and so forth and there was this uh, hysteria and uh, doctors started treating people from there and the result was astounding. Good evening, Dr. Sankara, uh, Shankara Chetty. And thank you very much for joining us on the platform, the Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'a, and on Medical Files. How are you doing this evening, Doctor? Uh, for having me, uh, Shabbat. Uh, glad to be here, and I'm doing well. Uh, doctor, you know, perhaps who better than yourself uh, to fill us in, uh, you know, how this interest came. Uh, by the way, are you in that, that part of the world called Margate? Yes, we're very close uh, to that. I live in Port Edward. I'm, I'm about 35 kilometers away from uh, southward towards the Eastern Cape. Uh, tell us about Port Edward. It was, uh, I remember when we were kids at school, and that uh, used to be our favorite uh, excursion uh, route. Tell us a little bit about your part of the world. The whole world is listening uh, to, to you. Uh, yes, uh, Port Edward is the last town on the Cape coast. A kilometer and a half is the border with the Eastern Cape. And you cross that border and the first thing you do is the famous Wild Coast Sun Hotel. So as kids, we, that was one of the first uh, uh, Resorts and casinos uh, in, in, in the former Transkei, and so it became very popular. Uh, Port Edward is a very small of uh, community. It was previously uh, whites only. That has changed since '94. We have a nice, diverse, broad population surrounded by a lot of rural settlements in KZN, the whole of the Eastern Cape at my door. So my clientele is very, very in a race in socioeconomic group, and of course the DC. But I live in a very beautiful kind of part of the holiday destination uh, that has a very peaceful, picturesque. Uh, and with the residents in my community, we try and keep it that way. Absolutely. And you're coming out very cool, calm and collected uh, this evening. And uh, doctor, you have made uh, headlines and, you know, um, uh, many media houses have carried you uh, for the simple reason of you helping uh, many people on the road to recovery. Uh, Fill us in on that, doctor. Uh, Okay. Uh, What what transpired last year uh, when COVID came to South Africa, uh, there was a lot of panic about this new illness, viral illness, that we knew nothing about. We knew that it was a respiratory virus. We knew that uh, 
severe illness, uh, patients were getting breathless, uh, ending up on ventilators. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about uh, how to treat this, what we need to do it. So I've always had very uh, uh, healthy interest in uh, microbiology, biochemistry, genetics. Uh, so I'll back on what happening. Uh, it was a risk. So I was very interested in trying to figure out what before patients actually got to hospital. At that point in time, the presiding uh, governing bodies discouraging patients from seeing their doctors worried about transmission of this virus. And so early out patient was sidelined. Uh, patients were told that if they get worse, then they need to present to hospital. But I wanted to figure out where we were going to in the first place. So I moved out of to protect my, uh, I put a tent in my parking lot. So that the positives out of the way. The other patients, of course, a tent because ventilation and sunlight are the most important things in preventing the spread of any respiratory. Uh, at that point, there was a lot of controversy coming out about how to uh, curb. So they were talking this virus living on many days and that kind of thing. But it didn't tie in with the typical picture of respiratory viruses. So I thought, well, I'll take my chances and I'll put a tent outside. I'll wear a mask and a, and a visor. I'll make sure I sanitize my hands and keep from examining. And I want to see how this disease progressed. Because viral illnesses tend to have a typical way which they and so the first patient that walked in with a positive COVID and I made it very clear that I expect a daily improvement and if their condition worsened I need to have them return so that I could examine them and figure out uh, what was going on with this. Uh, very early on I noticed that patients that worsened seemed to always worsen on the exactly one week after they started to feel unwell and all the patients found that by the sixth day, only for So this became my focus, that on the eighth day, there was something happening to these patients that was making them breathless. And so I, I knew that this was a steroid uh, responsive illness. So on the eighth day, those that worsened and uh, had uh, breathlessness and saturation drop, I started them on steroids. And it took three days odd for them to improve. I had uh, good recoveries within the first week of starting that kind of treatment. But I also felt that there was something that was still missing. Uh, speed to recovery is vitally important in judging whether your medication is actually appropriate. And people were having mild reactions on the eighth day. Some were having very severe reactions. And this didn't tie into the natural evolution of a virus. Uh, viruses don't cause mild infection in some people, very severe in others, uh, kill some. So I thought this is likely to be a body's response to a virus. And that would uh, explain the diversity of the response. So the only pathology that seems to have that kind of uh, trend is allergic reactions. We know that some people are not allergic to certain things and some people are mildly allergic and some are more severely allergic. So I thought, well, if we're dealing with an allergic process, then maybe try a antihistamine 
to see if it has been better benefits than us. And so the first patient that came in, is Dr. Shankara Chetty, and alhamdulillah, having a fascinating conversation with him. And I remember that uh, Dr. Shankara Chetty is a natural science biologist and a general practitioner. And hopefully, yeah, we are doing justice this evening over the discussion, the body, a perfect immune system. But uh, Dr. giving us that fascinating story of how he got into helping people out. And uh, yes, a doc, your story there and, you know, your staff members impressed with you. Many that were around you were impressed and uh, the reaction of the people and, uh, you know, also uh, getting attention from around the world. Uh, uh, take us through, doc. Uh, you know, we just had some uh, gremlins coming through, but uh, take us through uh, that fascinating story. Okay, uh, Shafrat. Uh, my staff uh, asked me to, you can hear me, can you? Loud and clear and very crystal yeah. clear. Okay, Thank my staff doctor. asked me to to uh, to write this down and share it with other doctors. Uh, this information that I found was worth nothing in my hands. Uh, I needed other people to share this so that we could all save lives together. So I wrote out an article explaining what I had found, the implications of what this means to the pandemic itself. Uh, and so I sent it to as many people as I could here in South Africa and abroad. I studied in India in JSS College in Mysore, and I was part of a WhatsApp group of doctors, so I shared it with them. I shared it with the principal of my college and with uh, a few doctors around the world that I had known. Uh, here in South Africa, I shared it with all the hospitals, the Minister of Health, whoever I could think of, and then I sent it to all the journals and all the other publications that might be interested. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the article, because of the uh, perspective, was pretty controversial. It had, it had commented on vaccinations and that kind of thing. So I found that uh, a lot of the journals refused to publish because of the article being too controversial. However, Modern Medicine approached me. Uh, the editor was very happy with what uh, I had found and he was willing to publish the article after it was peer-reviewed. Peer uh, he, he was willing to publish it unabridged, unedited, which was, which, which was what I wanted. And so it got published in Modern Medicine, I think in October last year. Uh, that went out to all the doctors in South Africa. Uh, with sending the original uh, article uh, overseas to my colleagues, I got immediate response from my principal and my colleagues in India. And so there was a lot of uh, buzz around it. We discussed coronavirus. We discussed uh, the perspective uh, for, I think, three weeks odd. And then uh, they understood the treatment modality and what I had found. And so a lot of doctors in India started using this kind of uh, perspective to treat COVID. Uh, the understanding being that on the eighth day, we triggered a hypersensitivity kind of reaction. And if that is not promptly and aggressively treated, uh, this leads to other manifestations uh, that eventually culminate in what's, what we knew as the cytokine storm. So I think the cytokine storm was something that came a lot later. Uh, it was too far away from the scene of the crime. And so we needed to start earlier treatment to actually uh, prevent the hospitalizations. Uh, it so happened. <clears throat> that I got a call from a Professor Chris Newton from Edinburgh University, he's an immunologist, and he was following what I was doing and saying on LinkedIn. 
uh, it's a job platform. And uh, he wanted to look at my full work. Uh, the very next day, he contacted me to say, look, there is no one in the world that has this perspective and it needs to be shared. So he contacted Dr. Philip McMillan, who's the lead COVID researcher globally, and asked him to do an interview with me. It was that interview that actually highlighted my findings on a global stage. And it brought a lot of uh, research that was previously controversial uh, into perspective. A lot of people said that this is a viral illness. And there were a lot of people saying it's an immune illness. Uh, both were right, uh, but it's the eighth day where things turn. So the first seven days is a viral illness. And from the eighth day onwards, it's an immune-mediated condition, a type of hypersensitivity, which needs to be stopped quickly, or you would find that it quickly spirals out of control. So my aim uh, with my treatment was to educate patients about that fateful eight day, uh, about symptoms that might worsen on that day, and for them to present promptly for treatment. Uh, as far as uh, globally, uh, there are a few things that happened since. I was invited by the Private Practitioners Association in Malaysia to come and train doctors there. And uh, we had 184 doctors in that session. Uh, we had doctors from Singapore and Indonesia and Cambodia as well. So I had a broad uh, base of doctors in the Southeast Asian area. And uh, that got turned into a course with the Regenerous uh, Campus. Uh, for doctors around the world to get a view on my perspective and how to use the treatment modality. And so that's where the the uh, perspective took flight. I was subsequently the following week called by the Meghalayan government, the Secretary of Health, to come and assist in their uh, treatment protocols there. Uh, very much the same. I presented on how I treat COVID and the importance of the eighth day and how to man uh, manage that day. And it's been used extensively there. India, of course, was already well aware of my treatment. Uh, so they've been using it now for almost a year. Uh, recently, I was contacted by uh, Mr. Omar Khan. Uh, he is an influencer with the Sri Lankan government. And we've done a presentation to the uh, Sri Lankan prime minister and uh, the head of the army there so that we can look at uh, ways of curbing the coronavirus wave that they're going through at the moment. So I've had some very good uh, uh, reports from around the world. Uh, the medication that I use is not controversial. Uh, neither is it off-label. Uh, the most important thing that I found was that we were chasing a virus after the eighth day, but it was actually our immunity that was causing the morbidity and mortality, and the virus most probably had left. And so the treatment that I use is completely different from the usual mainstream of uh, antivirals. And I think that was the initial controversy around my treatment regimen. Uh, I was of the opinion that we're not treating a viral pneumonia. We are more, tre more likely treating a hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is an allergic reaction in the lung itself, rather than a viral infection of the lung. Now, these two conditions look exactly the same on CT and X-ray, and I think that was the reason for the confusion. So with my treatment regimens, we've been having the same success around the globe. We've been able to curb hospitalizations, curb the need for oxygen, and prevent a lot of the deaths that were occurring. But of course, we've had uh, a lot of pushback from established protocols, 
from uh, governmental agencies, uh, from those that control these protocols. But uh, my, my aim was to educate doctors and patients so that if you've got a doctor that knows how to treat and a patient that knows when to present and what to expect, we'll take away a lot of the fear surrounding this illness. And that's, that's basically what my work around the globe has entailed. Very interesting indeed, uh, Doc, you know, very calm about that. And, you know, as you said, uh, the sad part is the protocol, red tapes, and it seems as if, you know, someone's pushing forward an agenda, uh, but we wouldn't like to get into that. Uh, some uh, some of them may call us conspiracy, conspiracy theorists. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, there was the talk about the oxygenator, uh, you know, uh, going in. Uh, I know the perception is that, you know, Many people uh, were paranoid. Uh, how, uh, you know, how did uh, the lockdown affect people mentally and uh, perhaps uh, physically, Doc? Look, the, the, the lockdowns, I think they were a knee-jerk reaction uh, to the fear that uh, had surrounded the globe uh, with this virus and uh, the overestimation of its deadly effect. It is a very dangerous virus, but the morbidity and mortality is not that high to have created that level of panic around the globe. Uh, the lockdowns and things, I think, were a little misplaced uh, because of the nature of the virus and, of course, the methodology of trying to find it. Uh, we, we instituted a lot of global uh, public health measures. And I think these public health measures were simply misplaced because of the poor quality of the PCR test that was used to find this virus. Uh, to put that into context for you, uh, our aim was to identify the virus and in doing so, uh, isolate those people. Uh, also to track and trace people that might have been in contact and to quarantine them. And this was the basis of the global population uh, intervention measures. Now, to do that, <clears throat> you need good eyesight. Good eyesight in the sense that you need to be able to find the virus. Find it very definitively. And so you can isolate it very definitively. And you can track and trace all those that might have been in contact and have the virus. Uh, to do that, uh, good eyesight is paramount. However, the PCR test was our eyes, and this PCR test was not very clear. Uh, it had a lot of false positives. It had a lot of false negatives. Uh, the PCR test initially was authorized for the testing of symptomatic patients between day one and day 14 of symptoms. It was never authorized for the, symptomatic, for, for the uh, testing of asymptomatic people. Neither was it authorized as a diagnostic or screening tool. Yet the world jumped on it and started to use it in those uh, settings that it was not authorized for. Now, a test that has many false positives and negatives is like having bad eyesight. And so it made it difficult to be able to isolate the virus. You were getting a lot of false, false positives who were isolated for no reason. And you were getting a lot of false negatives who weren't isolated and allowed the virus to spread. Now, if you have blurry eyesight and you are trying to isolate a virus, then it's like trying to find the pee in a swimming pool. It's impossible. 
You'll never be able to identify it. You'll never be able to uh, isolate it. You'll never be able to track and trace it. Your vision is not good enough. So the PCR test that we relied on led to a lot of public health measures that uh, I think were nonsensical and didn't achieve what we had hoped they would achieve. Uh, as well, in all of history, we have never used isolation and quarantine measures to curtail the spread of a respiratory virus. So I was quite surprised that this became the mainstay of our public health response to a respiratory virus. But of course, uh, globally, we were at the mercy of uh, organizations that set the rules. And so these uh, measures became mainstream. And of course, as population, we diligently followed it. Uh, whether they have had any benefits, uh, I'm very doubtful. Uh, yes, they have, in a way, created a lot of fear around the globe. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, the psychological impact of what was done with this pandemic and how it has influenced people's behavior and how it has influenced the illness as well. Yes, sir, Doc, you know, I know I talked to uh, many, uh, you know, herbalists. Uh, I talked to also uh, people of a uh, Yunani Tib and, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the other alternative, uh, the very popular medicine from India, they, the, what they call it, uh, it has this uh, special name. Uh, you should know about it. The name, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Rajan Kupan and so forth, they do these uh, treatment. But, uh, you know, uh, mostly a lot of tamarind involved. But it is believed uh, that uh, when you have, uh, you know, even the, uh, the Russo or things like that, very good for the COVID virus, uh, uh, virus. And they say that the COVID has been there for some time. And uh, why is it getting more powerful? And they also, they, they give you a whole list. And they say the next strain is this strain and then other strain is coming through. But with your treatment, doctor, you don't have to worry about that. Once you're cured, you're cured, uh, doc. Yes. Uh, look, <clears throat> coming to the strains of the virus. Uh, okay, let's let's first look at the, 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 the natural remedies. Uh, doctor, uh, by the way, it was the Ayurvedic medicine. Yeah, the Ayurvedic. Sorry. Ayurvedic. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. Look, uh, the natural remedies have always held benefit. Uh, they haven't been well investigated because we don't have the big pharmaceutical money to help us do clinical trials on such medications or such natural interventions. Uh, however, uh, historically, I think all of us know about the benefits of uh, Russo and uh, turmeric and all the other herbs and spices. Uh, after all, Indian uh, traditional cooking uh, evolved as a treatment uh, so we know our parents made specific dishes when we had specific illnesses, uh, chicken pox, and when we had the flu, and when we had a runny tummy. So there's different medications that got incorporated into Indian cuisine uh, that have a lot of benefit. Uh, from, the, from the perspective of the variants, I think what our audience needs to understand from the perspective uh, is that the first seven days is an ordinary flu. And for each of us, that flu will be different. We've all had colds and flus over the years, and we know what works for us individually. So the first seven days is to treat a flu. And that is best done by yourself and your GP. 
because your GP tends to know you best and which antibiotic works if you get a bacterial infection. And you tend to know what works for you, whether it's rubbing Vicks or sitting under the blanket or whatever you usually do for the flu. So the first seven days of COVID illness is really not a concern. The aim is to try and get over the illness as quickly as possible. It is on the eighth day where all hell might break loose. And so the first seven days is in preparation for that eighth day. You want to get to that eighth day as well as you can be. So it's vitally important early on to seek medical attention so that you don't come to me on the sixth day with the bronchitis and you've already given your neighbor a chance and the pharmacist a chance and you tried every concoction you could and realized it didn't work and then decided to consult your doctor. You have not given him sufficient time to get you prepared for the eighth day. So I would impress on people to start treatment as soon as they notice they are feeling unwell. Now, from the eighth day onwards is where the problem lies. Now, in the second wave, <clears throat> I managed to identify that the trigger for this uh, allergic reaction is actually the spike protein of the virus. It's the spike protein that when free from the viral structure on the eighth day, that seems to trigger this unusual reaction in some patients who are allergic to spike protein. And that allergic reaction will be either mild, moderate, or severe. So I early on started classifying COVID illness as mild, moderate, or severe based on the symptoms of the eighth day. I ignored the first seven days because that was just a flu and it had no bearing on what was going to happen on that eighth day. Now, when I found that spike protein was the culprit, spike protein is also the, the most mutational part of this virus. So a lot of the variants tend to have changes in that spike protein. And so the variants that we find around the world because of those changes in spike protein, will present with a little bit of different symptoms on the first seven days, depending on the affinity of that spike protein for different receptors in your body. Uh, you'll also find that different variants of the virus might be different in their contagiousness. So the spike protein might be a little more sticky for human beings, and so the virus becomes a little more contagious. And because it seems to be the trigger for this allergic reaction, uh, different variants tend to present with different severities of reaction on the eighth day. And so as much as there's variants around the world, the worsening on the eighth day has remained consistent, irrespective of variants. And the perspective of how to treat on the eighth day has remained the same. Yet the aggression with which we treat might need to be modified dependent on the severity of each of these variants that, uh, that show up. So it's vital to remember that coronavirus uh, COVID illness is a two-part illness. The first part is a viral illness. And the second part is uh, illness that gets triggered by a hypersensitivity reaction. Uh, if you stop this hypersensitivity reaction immediately, it starts, then you will have no further sequelae. If you do not catch it timelessly, then the, uh, the hypersensitivity will lead to widespread inflammation, which then becomes hyperinflammation, and that requires high doses of steroids. 
Uh, if you do not treat that hyperinflammation, it will progress into hypercoagulability. And that's where the blood clots and things start to manifest. And that would require anticoagulation. Now, there's a lot been written about the hyperinflammatory syndrome and the hypercoagulability syndrome of this illness. Uh, but uh, what I found is that if we address the hypersensitivity on the eighth day and treat it aggressively and promptly, the patient does not present, uh, progress to the other two phases. So coronavirus pro uh, causes an illness called COVID illness, which has a viral phase and a hypersensitivity phase. The virus is not the primary pathogen of COVID illness. The virus just causes a common flu, and that is about as far as the virus will impact on this illness. However, spike protein, which causes what I would call spike protein illness on the eighth day going forward, is the primary pathogen of COVID illness. So spike protein illness is what is causing the mortality and morbidity in, coronavirus, in, corona, in COVID illness. Coronavirus is just a vector that helps spike protein get into your body. On the eighth day when the virus is no more, spike protein is free, and that, it, that is what triggers the second part of this illness. And that's the reason some people get past the eighth day without any further complications. They are not allergic to spike protein. Those that are allergic will have a reaction. And some people might have more severe reactions dependent on the variant that they're exposed to because the diff different variants will have different spike proteins. Yes, uh, Doc, uh, you know, very graphic indeed. And, uh, you know, explaining it, uh, that makes a lot of sense uh, to all of us. Uh, we're going to go for a break. And, uh, you know, uh, we had advertised uh, the program quite extensively. And uh, quite a few questions have come in uh, from uh, the uh, listeners. And I will be, uh, 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 you know, presenting them to you. First, uh, let's go to the marketplace and uh, do some uh, shopping. You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Medical Files and in conversation with uh, Dr. Shankara Chetty, a natural science biologist and a general practitioner. And Alhamdulillah, you know, he's really put uh, the uh, coronavirus in perspective and he spoke about the spike and he spoke about uh, how the world uh, has uh, been, you know, fascinated with his uh, studies and his success rate. Many coming, turning his car, parking a lot into a um, like a mini hospital, and the treatment uh, uh, really uh, making waves in the positive uh, direction. And yeah, yes, uh, Doc, as I said, uh, are you enjoying yourself this evening? Yes, yes, Shafika. It feels good being in your company. Uh, looking at the first question that I have here, it says our physiology, our body created perfectly to interact with nature and the environment. Why this sudden compromise in uh, immunity? Uh, this is a very probing question. And, uh, you know, whilst you were having your discussion, you did touch on that. But how would you answer this uh, listener, Doc? Okay. I think, I think the perspective uh, of my nature is vitally important in how I saw this. I was very surprised that very few people, if any, noticed the biphasic nature of this illness. Uh, I, I'm a very spiritual person. 
uh, God-fearing. I wouldn't call myself religious, but uh, I've been brought up to uh, recognize the presence of uh, God around me. And my love for nature has always been that God is nature. And if I take the time to understand how nature works, I might get an insight into his plan. So I don't plant in winter. Uh, there are certain rules and regulations that nature follows, and these cannot be changed. So as a doctor, I've always worked with nature and tried to understand how nature actually does its thing. Uh, these are rules and regulations that are almost written in stone. And that's the reason uh, when coronavirus uh, came to South Africa, uh, I had to look at the natural evolution. So nothing that's happened with this virus is actually out of the ordinary. Uh, yes, we tried to treat it out of the ordinary, but I thought if I, if I sat in silence, the, the truth will come. So uh, as I believed, coronavirus is God at work. Uh, it is him doing his job. Yes, it might be uh, injurious to us, but we're really unaware of its full scope. Like everything in nature, there is always a plan. Uh, we might not understand it, uh, but I think we must always be cognizant that there is always a plan bigger than us. So when this virus uh, came to South Africa, I had to put my faith in God. Uh, that's the reason I took the risk. I realized that there was no reason to be fearful. If it's God doing his work, then there's more reason to be respectful. And if I was respectful of this virus, I would be protected. And so I took the risk uh, to go out and, and actually examine and understand what this virus was doing. And yes, uh, I was aware that this was a very unusual virus that seemed to have jumped from bats to human beings. And the only way a virus could do that was through its uh, protein surface uh, that makes it attached to a specific species. So from the beginning, I had spike protein in my radar as the culprit for this allergic process. Generally, when we put into new environments or exposed to new things, we might be allergic. It takes a while for our bodies to learn and to become tolerant of our environment. So seeing that I thought this being a, is an allergic reaction, I kept spike protein as the culprit because it was likely to be the one new thing uh, on this virus. Uh, we've been exposed to coronavirus previously, and we've never seen this kind of thing. Uh, so uh, the spike protein was, uh, was always foremost in my mind. Now, looking at the evolution of the disease, I never looked to find anything unusual or anything strange. I always looked for patterns of nature and to see which pattern fitted the best. And that would give my understanding. So on the eighth day, when I found patients deteriorate, I noticed the difference in the speeds of deterioration. And that didn't fit with nature. Uh, nature has a set rate. It has a set pattern. It influences those around it in a very similar way. And so I thought, well, Looking at pathology and the evolution of illness, what could explain this diversity that I was seeing? That some patients had no reaction at all, and some patients had such severe reactions that within a day or two, they were critically ill. 
And the only thing that tends to explain this uh, is allergic reactions in nature. And so that's how I understood that we were naturally allergic to something in this virus. So as much as nature has its way of doing things, I don't think that the illness that we suffer as COVID is anything unusual. It is natural. It has a natural evolution. And the benefits that I've seen and the, the, the perspective that I've developed comes from the natural evolution of such conditions. Yes, uh, Doc, you know, uh, perhaps uh, thinking aloud here, why this uh, sudden rush to have everyone vaccinated? Why this uh, paranoia from the authorities that you have to get vaccinated? Why these thoughts in certain governments that if you're not vaccinated, you may lose your job. If you're not vaccinated, you, you can stop your bank account. If you're not vaccinated, uh, then you become a non-entity. What's, what's this all about, Doc? Look, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, illogic <clears throat> in what's going on with the vaccine. Maybe a little uh, insight into the history of what's happened here. Uh, from the beginning, we were chasing our tails trying to find a cure for this or a treatment for it. And of course, uh, the, the, the global uh, guidelines of not going to your GP and uh, depriving people of early treatment and isolation for 14 days and lockdowns, uh, all that uh, actually stifled understanding. So at some point, uh, we have the global pharmaceutical industry that decided that the best way forward would be vaccination. Now, the thing with vaccination is that it can take many years to develop and many years to perfect. And we didn't have uh, many years to wait. We should have initially looked at early treatment options and ways of preventing death uh, or morbidity. Vaccines are not treatments. They are prevention. And they are always a second or third line of intervention. Now, we did the first line of lockdowns and isolation and track and trace. And of course, that was done with very bad eyesight. <clears throat> The second line of treatment, which should have been uh, early treatment and preventing hospitalizations, was completely ignored. Uh, then we went directly to vaccinations. Uh, hospital treatments, uh, which were failing uh, with ventilations, and uh, vaccination. Now, when the vaccine manufacturers started to develop these vaccines, <clears throat> they published uh, incomplete uh, evidence of their efficacy. Uh, however, because of the lack of any treatment, they were given an emergency use authorization. Now, this emergency use authorization didn't negate the obligation from the producers of these vaccines uh, to protect society and not to cause any harm. <clears throat> so the emergency authorization was on the premise that there's no other treatment options, and it was our only option uh, at the time, uh, which again was flawed. Uh, it was also uh, expected to move forward very cautiously. Uh, we were expected to vaccinate those that we considered at highest risk. Uh, however, uh, the risk stratification of this illness was very poorly understood. Uh, people were looking at it from the perspective of a virus that was causing the death, rather than the perspective of an immune reaction causing the death. And so risk stratification became very difficult. The vaccine was initially limited to older patients, 
And uh, we should have been doing the necessary follow-ups on those patients to collect data on efficacy and safety. Uh, however, that was not done uh, to the proper standards. Uh, <clears throat> uh, very quickly, the vaccination program got expanded to include younger patients, uh, to include workers, to include uh, uh, medical staff. Uh, all this was done without any proof of efficacy and without any safety data. So this led to a lot of uh, people being uh, concerned, uh, people being skeptical, and I think rightly so. <clears throat> Whenever we have a new scientific medical intervention, it needs to be well tested. It can hold the potential of uh, harming on a massive scale. And so we need to tread very cautiously with such developments. And I think that the public became very quickly aware that this vaccine uh, 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 rollout was rushed. We didn't have all the data. Uh, we didn't have uh, any of the safety data. And so people started asking questions. <clears throat> However, uh, instead of the uh, media and government providing uh, scientific answers to those questions, we found that a lot of people were being banned from social platforms, being censored, uh, debate was stifled, uh, and that created even more confusion. Uh, the way to get to good understanding is always robust debate. And when it comes to vaccinations specifically, that's been suppressed on a global scale. And I think it's quite obvious to everyone that it's being suppressed. Now, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we are doing a clinical trial of an experimental set of vaccines. <clears throat> and by good clinical practice standards, we have very poor data on safety and efficacy. And patients are expected to waive their liability even though there is no data on safety. And so I think that the patient's right to choose whether to join such a clinical trial remains paramount until we can prove that it's safe and effective. Now, we vaccinated over a billion people on this planet already. <clears throat> so it seems pretty strange that we still are lacking any data on efficacy and on safety. Uh, then we found a lot of contro controversy around early treatment options, which is what I uh, found as well. There was controversy about ivermectin, uh, controversy about hydroxychloroquine. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding the early treatment options. But it seems strange because all these treatments have been well used for the past 50 years. Or and we haven't had any safety signals emerge from these medications that would cause concern. We, we barely had any deaths from these medications. Uh, then there was all the controversy about efficacy. <clears throat> and uh, whether the drug is effective or not, it passed the safety. So I don't think we should stifle any uh, uh, research into efficacy uh, to try and test this out. So I found a double standard here. We had no uh, evidence of uh, safety or efficacy with the vaccine, 
yet we were moving full steam ahead. <clears throat> and uh, even though we had good safety data on uh, medications, even though we had only anecdotal or observational evidence of uh, efficacy, treatment was being stifled. <clears throat> and remember, treatment was being stifled uh, to those who required treatment. We don't want to treat everyone. We want to treat only those that are unwell. However, the vaccine was being pushed onto everyone. Whether you're sick or well, you're encouraged to take a vaccine we had no data on. And that still is where we are. We don't have any reasonable data on safety and efficacy. Now, the VERS reporting system for safety is not the ideal system in a clinical trial. You want good, verifiable data. So that data on the VERS system can swing both ways. It can justify vaccination or it can uh, go against vaccination. So unfortunately, such data can be left open to manipulation for someone's own selfish gain. Now, I think the perspective that we need to put in place when it comes to the vaccines itself, a vaccine is meant to prevent illness or prevent, the, uh, prevent a viral infection or prevent the transmission of that viral infection. And that's how it becomes effective as a population tool. So if the vaccine can stop you getting the virus or transmitting the virus, then by you getting vaccinated, it will protect the person next to you. And that is the essence of a vaccine. However, in light of recent data published by the CDC last week, in comparison with vaccinated and unvaccinated patients who developed the COVID illness from the Delta variant, they found that the infectiousness was the same in both vaccinated and unvaccinated. The viral loads were the same, uh, a little bit higher in those that were vaccinated, troublingly so. And the ability to transmit the virus from person to person was no different between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. <clears throat> so in as far as the vaccine goes as a vaccine, it clearly does not stop you getting infected, and it clearly does not stop you transmitting the infection. So it has no population benefit. So whether I'm vaccinated or not, <clears throat> I will transmit this virus in very much the same way to the person sitting next to me. The vaccine does not impact on that. However, the claim to fame of the vaccine is that it decreases the severity of illness and prevents death. Now, we need to be very clear that that is not a vaccine effect. That is a therapeutic effect. Uh, I get the same benefit from treating patients. So we need to classify the vaccine accordingly. Is it a vaccine? And if it is, it is wholly ineffective. Is it a therapeutic agent? And if it is a therapeutic agent, then we should compare to other therapeutic agents around that are currently being used to treat corona. Now, to put perspective to the mandates and uh, <clears throat> the pushing of people to get vaccinated, it is really nonsensical. 
because the vaccine has clearly no population benefit. So the vaccine doesn't protect the unvaccinated because those that are vaccinated can still spread it at the same rate. They transmit the virus once they get it at about the same rate. So it has no broad-based population benefit. <clears throat> if the virus, if the vaccine prevents severe illness and death, now there are two things there to be considerate of. One, that is not a vaccine effect. And so you can't use it as a claim to fame simply because vaccines are given to everyone. Treatments are not. Treatments are given to sick people. So that's the first point that we need to be considerate of. The second point is that uh, vaccines uh, itself, <clears throat> if they claim to be a therapeutic agent, need to go through a different set of screening, a different set of rules when doing clinical trials. Now, if that claim to fame is true, look, we don't know how to predict severe illness or death. Now, I find it difficult if I can't predict severe illness or death to have someone claim that they can prevent it. So I take that with a pinch of salt. Uh, if you can prevent severe illness or death, then that is an individual benefit. It is not a population benefit. So if I take the vaccine, I will prevent myself having severe illness or death. But that doesn't protect the person next to me getting severe, severely ill or dying. So it becomes an individual benefit. Now, if it is just an individual benefit that these vaccines provide us, then we surely have a choice. <clears throat> the vaccine does not impact on the person next to me. So there's no reason for the person next to me to try and convince me to take it. However, the vaccine protects me from severe illness or death, apparently. And I have the right to choose whether I would risk taking the vaccine or I would not and risk taking the chance with the coronavirus infection. So that is an individual risk that should not negate my individual rights. So when it comes to vaccination, the mandating of vaccines is very misplaced. Uh, for those that smoke, they do not impact on those that don't smoke. So we give them the choice whether they'd like to smoke or not. For those that overindulge in food and have obesity, we do not mandate that they should only eat so much because they're killing themselves. Whether I overeat has no impact on the person sitting next to me, so I'm given free choice. And I think that's what we need to understand with the vaccinations. People's right to choose what happens to their individual bodies <clears throat> is paramount. And so good clinical practice and informed consent is paramount in getting people to be vaccinated in that there should be absolutely no coercion. In view of the fact that there's no safety or efficacy data out there that can be reliably uh, referred to, even the recommendation 
to take a vaccine can be seen as coercion because a recommendation would be based on nothing. We have no basis to recommend this vaccine. We don't know if it's safe. We don't know if it's effective. The safety data that's coming out shows that there are, there are, there are markers, there are signals that we should be very wary of from a safety perspective. And from efficacy, we've not seen any efficacy with the vaccine. So mandating this vaccine is absolutely illogical. It has absolutely no grounding in science. <clears throat> uh, I think as well that the psychology behind the vaccines is very important in understanding how people are looking at the vaccines. Uh, from what has transpired over this year, <clears throat> there's been a lot of fear-mongering. People have been kept fearful for over a year now. With that fear, there has been a constant uncertainty. And that uncertainty has been uh, promulgated by certain organizations. There's also been a lot of confusion, again, seem to be uh, pushed by certain organizations. We must wear a mask, and then we must not wear a mask, and then we must wear two masks. Lockdowns are good, isolations are bad. It kept changing. And then, of course, with the lockdowns, we had people very distressed, uh, people becoming desperate. And, of course, we lost all the comforts. We lost all the ability for human interaction. Now, what that has done on a global scale is caused people to lose faith. And that loss of faith is a dangerous thing. Because when people lose faith and they put into a corner and they're scared, then you get a fight or flight response. And so people do not really think clearly at that point. Now, we're frustrated and afraid and we want to get back to normal life. So the vaccine initially promised that it would be the only thing that would get us back to normalcy. <clears throat> so the vaccine was presented as our savior. And it seems that now vaccination is viewed as a religion rather than a science. It has become hotly contested. Uh, it has become a cult-followed uh, 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 intervention. And I, I, I can't understand why the science has actually not been looked at. And I think uh, that this might have been the agenda from the start, to force people into a situation where they would do anything to get out of it. But clearly, the vaccines haven't showed that benefit. And it might take a few months to a year for us to realize that, uh, hopefully, with the safety data that's now coming out, we don't end up with unnecessary collateral damage from an ineffective vaccine program. I tell you, Dr. Shankar Achetti, absolutely brilliant uh, this evening. I really enjoyed you. And uh, perhaps we need you more on, uh, you know, this platform to uh, address uh, many other issues. And, you know, the frightening thing you say that perhaps this vaccination has become a cult-followed intervention and science being marginalized and perhaps a man of truth not even given the platform. Dr. Shankara Chetty, your parting words before I let you go. Okay. 
Look, I think the 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 most important things. Uh, first of all, I think that the fear and the hopelessness uh, need not be there. Uh, people have access to information, and I think it's vitally important that people can research everything from early treatment options to vaccines and their side effects and their benefits. Uh, unfortunately, we are on a global stage where there are influences who govern how we take this forward. Uh, I am hopeful that they will start to understand the science behind it and give a voice to everyone so that we can have a robust debate. Uh, the second thing, I don't think this pandemic is very difficult to solve. Uh, the first thing we need to do is improve our eyesight to find this virus. And so a more spe specific uh, test to isolate the virus is vitally important. Uh, secondly, uh, we're talking of uh, vaccine passports. I think that's uh, really irrelevant. Uh, there are two ways to immunity, uh, through natural infection and natural immunity, and of course, vaccine-induced immunity. Uh, all the research around the world has shown a war abroad, diverse, robust, long-term natural immunity, uh, which uh, is God-given after you uh, finish this infection, get over this infection. Uh, the second line to immunity is, of course, vaccinations. Uh, vaccination immunity is wholly unproven. Uh, like the study I spoke about with the CDC, they have found that six months after vaccination, it drops and drops to almost zero coverage. So all we need to do is develop the specific TOB cell tests to see who's immune to this virus. And whether you got to that immunity via natural infection or a vaccine, we should be talking about issuing you with an immunity passport rather than a vaccine passport. So all that show immunity can throw away their masks and go back into society and then we can return to normal. Uh, so I think that's vitally important in being pragmatic and really uh, sorting out the issues that we have with this pandemic. Uh, as far as uh, the hope and the, uh, the, the fear goes, uh, education takes away your fear. So I hope that people start to look at this, uh, the information out there, uh, get a good, broad, pragmatic view on what this virus actually is about and be aware of the treatment options out there because that brings some hope. Uh, I think that uh, as well, the education uh, brings a lot of uh, hope and takes away fear by understanding what you as a patient with coronavirus need to actually do. Uh, there's a lot of help out there. Uh, as far as the governance around this goes, I think people need to stand up and protect their rights. They need to protect their freedoms. This might be more about curtailing your freedoms and rights than about vaccination. So I think people need to be pragmatic. Uh, look at the research, look at the data, be logical about what you're trying to achieve. There's no quick fixes. We don't want this vaccine to become a religious crusade. And that's where it, points, it, it seems like it's pointing to. Uh, the vaccine isn't our savior. Uh, the vaccine will not pre uh, prevent floods and forest fires. So this is God at work. I think the one thing that's going to change or to give us hope and save this is faith. Faith in God is here with an agenda. I think for too long we've been killing the life on this planet by limiting its diversity. And uh, diversity is what gives us strength and is actually the strength of life. 
And until humanity understands this, uh, Corona is here to break everything. Everything that's not built on firm foundation. So education is going to break, healthcare is going to break, families are going to break, but it will give us the opportunity to build on a new, broader, more equitable foundation. So I think it's a learning lesson to humanity, and we need to be able to curtail our egos and our selfishness if we want to move in the correct direction. But there's always hope. Yeah, I like that. There's always hope. And uh, yeah, faith is a great healer, people. And uh, as uh, Dr. Shankara says, prayer, faith, and the divine decree dictate to us and are not man. The things of this world proceeds by divine decree and not by man's administration. Dr. Shankara Chetty, hopefully we'll talk to you in the near future. You have a blessed evening ahead. And thank you very much for being with us. And it's time for us to go for the Ishazan. Thank you, Doc. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir, Dr. Shankara Chetty. Let's go for the Ishazan.